the pandemic has had a very very adverse impact on Africa's economic outlook and of course now we know that uh, sub-Saharan Africa will be in a recession for the first time in uh, in over 25 years What role will trade play in the global economy of the future? Can the multilateral rules-based trading system survive? Or will nationalism and protectionism lead to a world of trade barriers and trading blocks? These are some of the questions tackled by the AIG Global Trade Series 2020, a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. The series moderator is Rem Korteweg of the Klingendal Institute. Hello and welcome to this podcast for the AIG Global Trade Series 2020. My name is Rem Korteweg. I am a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands. And today's conversation focuses on the global trade environment in Africa. More specifically, what is the outlook for trade integration in Africa? And I'm honored to be joined today by two excellent speakers. First of all, joined by Vamkele Mene, who is the Secretary General of the African Continental Free Trade Area Secretariat. He's had a long and distinguished career as an international trade lawyer and later as a diplomat at the WTO and as an official for the government of South Africa. From 2010 until 2015, Wamkele represented South Africa at the World Trade Organization in Geneva, Switzerland, and he is now the first Secretary General of the African Continental Free Trade Area, or AFCFTA. And secondly, I'm joined by Professor Katrin Kuhlman. Katrin is a visiting professor at the Georgetown University Law Center. She's also president and founder of the New Markets Lab, and her work focuses on the intersection between law, trade, and development. She's also a senior associate with the Global Food Security Project at the U.S. think tank, Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, and she's a member of the Trade Advisory Committee on Africa of the Office of the United States Trade Representative. In other words, we have two excellent speakers to bring us up to speed on what's happening in Africa regarding global trade, regional trade integration, and the impact of the pandemic on Africa's trade outlook. Now, before we get started, it's worth pointing out that the AFCFTA is really a good news story about trade integration and liberalization at a time when the world is actually very worried about decoupling Chinese-American trade tensions and protectionism. This, I think, warrants a closer look at what the AFCFTA does. But before we dive in there, I want to ask a general question to Wamkele in particular. And that is about the impact of the pandemic on Africa's trade and economic outlook so far. How bad is it? And how has the pandemic affected African economies? Wamkele? Well, thank you very much. And thank you for having me. The pandemic has had a very, very adverse impact on Africa's uh, economic outlook. If you remember uh, last year, out of the 10 fastest growing economies in the world, six uh, were in Africa. Africa's growth rate on average was at about four, between four and uh, 5% per annum, which was moderate, but acceptable for the time 
given the state of the global economy. And of course, now we know that sub-Saharan Africa will be in a recession for the first time in, uh, in over 25 years. Sub-Saharan Africa's economy is projected by the World Bank to contract between 2 and uh, 5% this year. And sub-Saharan Africa has, uh, has lost up to $37 billion worth of trade in the area of trading services. So the impact has been significant and livelihoods have been affected. However, I think that the African continental free trade area presents us an opportunity to recover quicker than we ordinarily would, provided, of course, we liberalize trade. And provided, of course, we make sure that as we liberalize trade in Africa, intra-Africa trade, that it becomes a driver for economic recovery in Africa. Thank you for that. Um, Katrin, from your perspective, what do you think the impact of the pandemic has been on Africa's economic outlook? Thank you, Ram. Well, I think as Wamkele has um, very clearly articulated, it, it, the pandemic is having an adverse impact and it is all over the world. I think that we don't quite know yet exactly what the full extent of the impact will be, but I think that we can already see that things are changing pretty profoundly. And one of the things that I think is very hopeful, I guess, and heartening, and Rem, I think you you mentioned this already, is that we have a good news story. And if you look around the world at how the pandemic is impacting every single country to different degrees and in different ways, but this is something that is completely global. And, you know, for the first time in a long time, we have a situation where everybody is in this together. But what I've been so heartened by is is the degree to which African nations and Wamkele, as Secretary General of the AFCFTA, and his colleagues who are officials within African institutions are stepping forward and saying trade is going to be part of the solution. And I don't hear that coming out of a lot of other parts of the world. So for me, I think that part of what's going to be very interesting about this is how we all respond, how nations respond together, how they respond individually, and what sort of approach we all agree on going forward coming out of this. But I think that that leadership that we're seeing already coming out of the African continent is one of the most heartening things that I've seen in the trade sphere over the last you know, several months. So let's talk a bit about the AFCFTA. Again, we've got major trade tensions between the largest players in the global trade environment. There's talk of fragmentation. If you go back to the Secretary General of the United Nations speech at the UN General Assembly, he was already hinting at the great fragmentation, if you will. And then there's the AFCFTA, which is a new initiative. It was brought into force two years ago, if I'm not mistaken, and now it's going to start trading in early 2021. What are the main objectives of the AFCFTA, Wamkele? The main objectives are, again, to pick up on where Catherine left off, to integrate the market in Africa to overcome, in other words, to overcome our current state of market fragmentation, to overcome the smallness of national economies in Africa, to enhance economies of scale, to ensure that we have a single rule book for trade and investment in Africa, 
And then, of course, to reduce regulatory barriers to trade in Africa and to reduce tariffs and to reduce investment barriers to trade on the African continent. So that if you are an investor or a trader and you've invested in, in one country in Africa, when you go to another country, you are not subject to a different set of rules and regulations. We want to create market certainty market predictability and legal certainty of investing and trading in Africa. And we think that that will boost intra-Africa trade significantly above where it is today, which is very, very low. Intra-Africa trade today is at 18%. So we want to change that. We want to double intra-Africa trade by the year 2035. The starting point is a free trade agreement. That is where you start to address this issue of a deficit in intra-Africa trade. And so in practice, that's going to imply that the AFCFTA is going to start negotiations among not just the African members, but also among the different regional trade areas that are already in existence across the continent. Is that correct? Well, ultimately, the different regional economic communities will have to harmonize their existing regulations with the current objectives of the AFCFTA. And so the way the negotiations are structured now is that we are negotiating either as individual countries or as regional economic communities. So you will have, for example, ECOWAS negotiating with Egypt, a regional economic community negotiating with a country with a common objective of reducing the regulatory barriers and the tariff barriers to trade. It's like a spaghetti bowl of intra-Africa trade negotiations amongst countries and regional economic communities. One day, Africa will be a customs union. It is something that is a big vision of the African Union. And that means that ultimately, the regional economic communities part of their mandate will be subsumed into the African Union, Customs Union. But that is, of course, uh, far down the line uh, from today. That's a huge ambition, also given the diversity of the economies in the African continent. And Katrin, do you see this as a kind of a new model for trade integration? Well, I have to say, first of all, that I think that the ambition is absolutely commendable. And for many years, I've worked with Africa, in Africa. You know, I, I look back on some of the on the years where I was traveling frequently, which this year is not one of those. But and I was in, you know, in Africa, sometimes every other week or more. So I have to say, I, I do miss some of that travel and miss, you know, being close to, to watch how things unfold in a more real-time way. But I think that this challenge that Wamkele points out of really integrating all of these different regional economic communities, and I've had the privilege of working directly with some of the regional economic communities, it is not going to be easy. I mean, again, I think that this is so exciting, though, that this is the direction that countries and regional groups have decided to take. And I think if we also look at 
other examples of regional integration, including in Europe, it takes time. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. But to me, this does seem like a new model. And this is something that I've been researching and writing about. I think that listening to Wam Kele's response, I can see that there's going to be the need for research for many years to come because my experience is that as you sort of peel back the layers on what it really means to integrate these different legal systems, even at the regional level, there's a lot of complexity and detail that goes into that. Again, I have sometimes worked on this just looking at one regulation of one particular sector or one particular issue area, and it gets very complicated very quickly. But it does seem to me, though, that this is the right way to go and the right approach. And when you ask about the new model, Rem, this is, I do have a a paper coming out on this um, imminently, I think within the next several days in the Georgetown Journal of International Law. And one of the things that I focused on in that paper was how this presents a new model for trade agreements more generally and for incorporating development into trade agreements, including through this mechanism that we call special and differential treatment for lack of a, a better term. And you know, this is something that is apparent in all of the WTO agreements and rules. Um, it's something that appears over and over throughout the multilateral rules, but it's also something integrated into the AFCFTA. I'm sure Wong Kele can give us many details too on how he thinks this will work operationally. But what to me has been really interesting about this is that that principle of development sometimes is if we look at the multilateral rules, for example, and how development has been part of the conversation, it sometimes is almost a defensive posturing or mechanism. It sometimes is countries being able to say, well, wait a minute, we're not ready for this yet and we're going to step back. And what I think is so notable about the AFCFTA is that it is much more proactive. It is from the outset, this model where integration of the rules and really using the rules to drive development is part of the vision from the very beginning. So it's not, and I'm sure that there will be exceptions to the rules too. I mean, again, my read of the agreement, and I I do look forward to hearing all of Wamkele's responses, but my read of the agreement is that that's still very much embedded in how things will work, that countries will still be able to say, wait, this is a place where I need additional assistance, where I need additional time, where I need a way to build this into my system over time going forward, or, you know, maybe additional technical assistance in doing that. That is all still there. But I think that this very affirmative rules-based model is completely evident in the AFCFTA in a way that I don't think we see to that extent in a lot of other trade agreements and certainly have not seen at the multilateral level, this very proactive approach to using the rules for development. So that's, again, one of the things that I find so exciting about this. I do think it's going to be a big undertaking to do that. I think integrating all of these different legal systems and legal approaches, which are not you know, the same, even sort of at a fundamental level, will be a challenge. But I think that it's one that is going to show a lot of success over time. At a practical level, Wamkele, if I can ask, the ambition you sketched is to move towards a customs union, but you also indicate that, and Catherine said that as well, that it's going to take time. So how do you get started? I mean, what are the priority steps? What are the first steps that come January 2021 you're going to be emphasizing? Are those particular sectoral agreements 
Or is it trying to bring the few remaining African countries that have not yet joined the AFCFTA to sign up? I mean, how do you get started? There are 28 countries that have ratified the agreement as of today. So that means that these countries have accepted the legal obligations for opening their markets. They've accepted the legal obligations for reducing barriers to trade and liberalization of intra-Africa trade. There are 54 countries out of 55 who have signed the agreement. In other words, they've expressed a political commitment. And the next step that they will take is to accept the legal obligations, the, the ratification, as we call it. The first step is to implement the reduced tariffs that we have agreed to. In 15 years' time, Africa will be out of 97%, what we call a tariff book, so over 97% of a country's products will be at zero tariff by year 15. It's a very, very ambitious trade liberalization objective. So 15 years from 2021, so that's 2036 that we're talking about. Right. We expect that according to what we have agreed to, 97% of a country's product will move across the African continent at zero tariff. Second, we expect that there will be a common set of regulatory principles that we will agree to, which will be a framework for investing in trade and services, infrastructure, for example, in financial services, um, in a range of services sectors that require a regulatory framework in order for that economic activity to take place, whether it's telecommunications or financial services. We will do that without encroaching on the right of a country to regulate in its own public interest. But we believe that there is a balancing act that we have to establish a minimum set of standards for how an investor should be treated when they want to invest in financial services in a country in Africa without encroaching on the country's right to regulate. These things will take time to make the difference that we want them to make. It's going to take a long time. It's going to be difficult work. But this is the starting point that we require in order for the African Union one day to be a customs union. There will also be, of course, regulatory and other institutional arrangements that we will have to make. For example, we will have to look at having a common regulator for competition, a common regulator or a common authority, rather, enforcement authority for competition, a common enforcement authority for trade remedies, anti-dumping, subsidies, countervailing measures, and so on. All of these are the institutional arrangements that are required in order for a customs union to be effective. But we've got to start somewhere. And the way you start is by having a common tariff book and by having a single set of tariffs that all of us in Africa will be applying. And so from the 1st of January 2021 is the first step towards all of that. But I draw encouragement from the fact that It took the European Union uh, over 50 years, but the European Union started somewhere and made a lot of progress over many, many years. And we think that if we continue on this path of trade integration, that will also have an impact on stability and peace on the continent 
that is the outweigh if we are looking at this outside of the context of trade it has a very very positive impact on general welfare in africa we're going to take a quick break when we come back we'll talk about what is the outlook for trade integration in africa At a time when the multilateral rules-based order is under threat, conversations about global trade and its contribution to prosperity have never been more important. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2020. This series of podcasts is brought to you by AIG, the International Institute of Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Jacques Delors Institute, the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France. The Bertelsmann Stiftung is knowledge partner of the series. We're back from our break, and I'm here with Vamkele Mene. And secondly, I'm joined by Professor Katrin Kuhlman. My name is Rem Korteweg. I am a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands. The European single market started with a coal and steel community. And just coming back to this question of where do you start in Africa, what's the equivalent from your perspective to the EU's coal and steel? What sectors do we start with first? Or, or are you looking at it across the board? Our ambition is across the board. It is not a handful of sectors. And of course, because times have changed, the nature of a country's economy is different to many years ago. The interconnectedness of the services sector to the industrial sector is far more pronounced than uh, it was uh, over four decades ago. So you now, in a sense, you are constrained by the complexities and the interconnectedness of the global economy and the country's economy, you are precluded from taking a sectoral approach. So you've got to look at your country's economy and your regional economy as a whole, the regional value chains, the national value chains, and the connections across and within value chains. It almost compels you to take a big bang approach, which is what we have done. So the liberalization itself will be over 15 years but the scope is very, very comprehensive. So we expect that countries will be, we have an ex, what we call an exclusion list of only 3%. That's probably for the average tariff book, that's probably about 140, 130 products. So you're not going to be able to exclude from total liberalization too many products. And so the starting point that we have adopted is a much more ambitious, but of course, no criticism to the EU when it started, because as I noted, times were different. We are now in a more demanding global economy, and we have to be sufficiently responsive to its demands, not only for global competitiveness, but also our ability to be regionally and domestically competitive. You've got to look at it uh, holistically. Just one point I would make is on development. Catherine is absolutely right. One of the experiences that I draw from my time at the WTO is that if you look at a trade agreement purely 
from a commercial mercantilist perspective, the types of backlashes that we have seen in the US and in some parts of Europe against globalization, against free trade agreements, they will result. If you try to distinguish between a country's development, between inclusive growth, between that objective and opening uh, markets and liberalization of trade, you will end up with the types of backlashes that we've seen. So the approach we are taking is of inclusivity so that we don't benefit only the big African multinational corporations, so that we benefit also small medium enterprises, um, and here, a practical example that I can make is how can a trade agreement connect a small medium enterprise in Ghana with a small medium enterprise in Kenya on the other side of the African continent? How do we make sure that this market opening benefits these segments of society that often are overlooked by trade agreements? I think this development question is really critical, even now in the context of the pandemic. How do we use our intellectual property rights to be at the service of public health? So if we have a free trade agreement and it has a chapter uh, or a protocol on intellectual property rights, how do we make sure that that trade agreement advances not only the interests of right holders or the patent holders, but also is at the service of Africa's public health imperative? I have not seen a trade agreement that addresses that particular question the WTO, we tried, and we had very limited success, but here we have an opportunity to go even further than the moderate success we achieved at the WTO. So I think it's a very important aspect of our trade agreement is this very, very strong development dimension. Yes, absolutely. Katrine, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask if I could offer a few observations based on what Wamkele has just spoken about. And, and something that also struck me as you were asking about where the starting point is, mm-hmm. if that's okay. Um, Go ahead. Wamkele, I'm so excited and glad that you mentioned inclusivity as a focus of this agreement, because I, I agree. I think that that's often not how we have approached trade agreements in the past. I think they have been mainly approached through this dimension of you know, the market and how the agreement can affect the market. And we really haven't thought as much about the people um, the agreement is going to impact. And so I think, Rem, when we were speaking earlier about this being a new model, That's one of the things, too, that really strikes me and that I really hope is going to continue to come out um, in ways that we, you know, are not even seeing yet right now in terms of the impact of the agreement and its ability to deliver on something that is development focused and much more inclusive. But I wanted to go back also to the starting point question, because one of the things that strikes me also, I was really appreciated Wam Kele's comments, too, about the sectors and that we're really not so much in a world anymore where we sort of single out individual sectors that the that economies are much more interconnected. But I think one of the other things that strikes me as very interesting about the AFCFTA is that it has highlighted certain areas of the rules to sort of be a starting point. I mean, I think one of the things, again, that I think is interesting too, is that the model for the agreement, it's much more development focused and progressive in that area, but it's also flexible and incremental and doesn't necessarily try to do every single thing at once, even though it still takes a very systemic approach. And if you look at the approach on the rules, 
I think what's interesting there is that the issues that have been highlighted for the, you know, phase two, which will kick in after the um, market access negotiations that Wamkele has described complete early next year. On the rules issues, we have, you know, on the table are intellectual property, investment, and competition. And then for an, an additional phase, then a phase three, and again, Wam Kaylee will, you know, will jump in if any of this is has changed, but for phase three is digital regulation. That that has changed actually, Catherine. It will now be phase two. Yes. <laughs> I think I think COVID nineteen has expedited uh, uh, the need for e commerce rules here. Excellent. Well, I agree with you, and this is what I was going to say about the selection of these issues as sort of the the rules priorities for the agreement. We don't have multilateral rules in a lot of these areas, or if we have really developed a body of international law, right now it's changing. So in intellectual property, we do have rules. That's true. But I think Wamkele has highlighted that in the AFCFTA, the intention is to go beyond those rules. In the paper that I have coming out, I say something about this being a WTO or TRIPS plus for development. I mean, we've had this idea all along that kind of going beyond the rules is maybe sometimes going beyond the rules to enhance the market benefits, but here we have going beyond the rules to really enhance the social benefits. And so intellectual property, you know, I hope, and, and as Wam Kaley is saying, will really respond more to public health issues and access to medicines. And there has been some of that work done already through the WTO and through TRIPS, but it's had some issues. It's been difficult to administer. And I think now in this pandemic, we're seeing that the needs are so great and diverse and extend beyond medicines to PPE and equipment and all kinds of other things. So that's, I think, one area. On intellectual property, I would also say that what I have seen too talks about biodiversity and some of these other areas that we really haven't, you know, we we do have some international disciplines, but there again are still some gaps there. And these are such important issues for development more broadly beyond just the economic dimension. Investment, there's been a big rewriting of the rules through other trade agreements, through countries' um, own investment strategies, through the revision of bilateral investment treaties. So I'm very interested to see how that plays out. And then competition is an area where we really haven't been able to come to agreement, you know, internationally and multilaterally. And so to see that as something that's really central to this, I think is particularly telling and does seem like an area too, Ram, you started us off talking about COVID and the pandemic. I mean, it does seem like this is an area too, where we really need to focus and think about how smaller businesses are going to be able to participate in the market. And then, of course, on digital regulation, I think that's going to be fundamental. And I'm glad to hear Wamkele's point that that's now being accelerated because that's going to be a critical part of the global recovery from coming out of the pandemic. So I just wanted to make that observation, too, that I think maybe instead of sectors, we're looking at priorities on the rules and which areas are really going to have more of an impact. And it's exciting to see the AFCFTA go beyond what we've been able to do internationally. Let me make an observation about that. I mean, one thing that strikes me is that the AFCFTA can avoid some of the mistakes that, for instance, the Europeans made in terms of their integration process, not just like you say, Katrin, that it can avoid this overly focus on the market and try to be more comprehensive or holistic in including development very much in its ambitions. Secondly, 
A rules-based approach makes a lot of sense, of course, particularly when we face a global trade landscape where actually, frankly, international rules don't really seem to be respected as much, at least not by the big trading blocks. But the question regarding a rules-based approach is also who enforces them. What's the adjudicating mechanism? In the European Union, we have a very strong adjudicator, namely the European Court of Justice. I'm just curious because, Juan Kayla, earlier you mentioned that there are some institutions that will need to be developed to allow the AFCFTA to function. What are your thoughts regarding that governance element, the adjudicating body, if you will? We, of course, are not at that level of integration as the EU, so we will not have a supranational body. However, what we have, which is a creature of statute, is a dispute settlement body, which is, we looked at this free trade agreements from around the world that have dispute settlement mechanisms. And we looked, of course, at the um, dispute settlement mechanism of the WTO, and we've made some improvements from that international best practice that obtains today. So we have in the agreement a protocol on uh, dispute settlement, and we follow very much the same international trade law principles for resolving disputes that are covered by the agreement. There's a court of first instance. In other words, there is a um, panel that is established to consider the merits of the dispute. You don't like the ruling, you will have a right to take the ruling on review. You have the right of appeal and the panel will be adjudicated by experts on the field in international trade law. They will be able to call upon what we refer to in the agreement as an expert review panel that will give them specific technical advice on on the subject matter itself. If you don't like the ruling, of course, sovereign states, if they still do not accept the outcome of the uh, appellate body, this is where there will be a collision with a country's national sovereignty. Yes, you can take measures that uh, encourage countries to be in compliance with the rulings of an appellate body. But I mean, how many rulings have big countries uh, in the context of the WTO? How many rulings that they didn't like have they ignored? And so uh, we don't want to go the direction of countries ignoring rulings of the appellate body. However, the reality is that with sovereign states, there's very, very limited action that you can take. I mean, you can look at the New York Convention and some of the, the remedies that are contemplated in the New York Convention for enforcement. But as a general matter, it's incredibly difficult to enforce rulings. You rely on a country's goodwill and a country's willingness to subject itself to the rule of law. In this case, the rule of trade law. And what I think is an interesting dimension is when you look at the countries in Africa that were fastest growing, and six of them, they had a very good record on governance, at least from the point of view of the World Bank, the IMF, and investor sentiment. These are countries that are seen to be in compliance, to have enforceability of contracts, and all of the ingredients of a positive investment climate. And I think that it will be a factor when a country is thinking about not adhering to an outcome of the appellate body, because that will have an impact on your standing as a destination for investment. So it does help to encourage enforcement.
And at least on the face of it, the appellate body of the AFCFTA functions, as opposed to what we are now confronting at the WTO level. That brings me to what's happening at the global level regarding trade and how the AFCFTA interacts with that. If you allow me, I'd like to ask you a very simple question. That is, at the moment that we're recording this, we don't yet know who's going to be the new director general of the WTO. But we do know that there are at least two African candidates that have a very good chance of becoming the new director general. What, in relation to what we've been talking about, the positive message coming from the African continent regarding trade integration and trade liberalization, and that the AFCFTA is actually an example at the moment of embracing trade rather than breaking trade ties. What would it mean for the AFCFTA if an African candidate does lead the WTO? And how would it shape sort of the international trade discussion, given you would have on the one hand, the WTO being African-led, and at the same time, also the AFCFTA being this example of good news in the trade field? I think our claim as the two candidates that are remaining in the race, let me speak as, as an official of the African Union, our claim to Africa having to be the next DG of the WTO, it's not based on the fact that it has not been Africa's turn, as I've heard some people say, or that Africa has not led the WTO. It is really because we have demonstrated our commitment to the multilateral trading system by taking the rules of the WTO, imperfect as they are, inadequate as they are in some cases for many African countries, and we have actually perfected them, and thereby we have made the WTO as an institution even stronger. We have adhered to the multilateral trading system by adopting all the WTO rules and improving in them. So for me, this is what puts us in good stead to lead the WTO as Africans. It is not only because we are Africans, it is because we've made a very, very significant contribution to the multilateral trading system at a time when it is under assault. And we have added to the depth of the rules of the multilateral trading system. The second point I would make is that whoever ends up as uh, the DG of the WTO should, of course, expect to hear from us as uh, Africans uh, that we will protect our interests in the multilateral trading system to the extent that the rules allow us to do that. And, of course, we will continue to push for development outcomes within the WTO. We have already set an example for how a trade agreement can have a very, very strong development dimension. So whether there is an African or not in the WTO, we will continue to advance the same argument to whoever is ultimately the DG of the WTO. Catherine, do you agree with that? I mean, what's from your perspective the the value of having an African running the WTO? Well, I I think it really, again, is quite exciting to see where things are with the race for the next DG of the WTO. And I've been heartened to see that there are two very strong African candidates. I also want to say I'm heartened to see that they're both women, because I think that that's also you know, been a leadership gap and will be one that should be very interesting to fill at this stage and what's happening with the world. I agree with Wamkele that I think that, again, if you, you know, and this was what I mentioned earlier, too, in the context of the AFCFTA, 
and, you know, in general, how African officials and all the way down to citizens are, are talking about the power of trade to bring us out of this pandemic in this difficult situation. And I think that we see that same kind of approach coming out of the, the DG candidates. I guess one other thing that I would say is, is really notable, again, is looking at some of the statements that they've been making. They are really are talking about using the rules of trade more broadly to deliver on development. I think Wamkele was saying this very well, too. And, you know, in particular, for example, Amina Mohammed talking about sustainable development and linking trade with the sustainable development goals and the need to focus more on the environment as we go forward. And Gozi talking about health and her work in public health and how we really need to strengthen that part of the system. And so I think that we just are at this turning point in general. Whoever steps into the role of the WTO Director General is going to need to be able to lead the organization into the future. I mean, we've had so many difficulties institutionally over the last several years, you know, at the WTO level. So I think we need a strong person who can get us through kind of navigating some of those and getting the organization back to a place where it can really do its work well. But I think part of it also has to be somebody who has a vision for trade in this broader context and not just the way that we might have talked about trade before, but a version of trade that is more inclusive, that is more sustainable, that is going to bring in some of these other issues. And so that's been exciting to me to see some of the statements that the candidates are making that go beyond kind of the traditional confines of, of some of these conversations. Wamkele, I have one final question remaining for you, and that is the agenda we talked about is very much also inward focused on negotiations with and among African countries and the regional trade areas, economic communities. But what's the external agenda? So how will the AFCFTA interact with the United States, the European Union, China, particularly looking at the EU for a second? The EU has it as one of its trade priorities to develop a new trading relationship with Africa, also by connecting more trade and sustainability objectives. At the same time, I've mentioned it a couple of times already, we see that China and the US are more and more at loggerheads. And there is a risk, actually, that the United States and Chinese tensions is going to infect other trade relationships and the global decoupling that's sometimes been talked about. So how do you see the external environment, if you will, and particularly the relationship between the AFTA and the three major trading powers in the world? Well, thankfully for me, that is outside of my mandate. Um, <laughs> I, I don't have to worry about that difficult question because we are a free trade area. We are not a customs union. Uh, in yet. other words, yet. country yet, yes. So, so I'm looking now. Probably, will, 20 years, 15 years down the line, Africa will be a customs union, and I will be long gone. But for the moment, the decision as to who Africa negotiates with is an individual decision, unless you are in a customs union. So, we are not going to have an AFCFTA US negotiation. We are not going to have an AFCFTA. China or EU negotiation, that is still the exclusive competence of the individual countries or individual regional economic communities in Africa. It is something that is not contemplated in the agreement and there is no enabling legal provision for it 
in the agreement. That can only happen when we are a, um, a customs union. And then the second point, of course, is that it's a political decision for the Assembly of Heads of States. They would have to decide, of the African Union, of course, they would have to decide, um, even if we were a customs union, they would have to decide, do we go uh, negotiate with party A or party B? It would still not be within the mandate of the secretary general even if we had a secretary general of a customs union, it would still be a, a member state decision. I, I'm sure you are very familiar with the phrase member states. Yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. Catherine, any, any final thoughts on this? I'll offer a few thoughts. Um, just from, from my perspective, I, I, I do think that it's very interesting to watch now how these conversations are unfolding. As you said, Rem, that you was talking about a new form of relationship. I, I had studied quite extensively what the EU's uh, model for engagement with Africa under the economic partnerships before, and I think there were some challenges there, so hopefully those will be worked out in the future. China's model, again, is completely different. It's not an agreement-based model. It is a transaction-based model, really, focused on infrastructure development through the Belt and Road Initiative, largely, also has other dimensions to it. But I think that's fascinating because it's completely different than the way we often think about trade engagement in other respects. And I think for the U.S., the U.S. has been kind of really late to figure out what its strategy with Africa would look like. We've obviously had the African Growth and Opportunity Act for many years, but that's a one-way preference program. We haven't, other than Morocco, don't have any trade agreements. There is this Kenya, U.S.-Kenya trade agreement now that's underway, and I've been watching that closely. And I guess I would just say two things kind of overall about, just from my perspective about these trade agreements that other parts of the world are now trying to negotiate with the African continent, perhaps, or with parts broken up, as Wamkele said, you know, the regional economic communities or the member states. So one thing I think is whatever Africa's trading partners do, they have to take into account where the continent is going, what is happening with the AFCFTA, what that's going to mean for trade in the future. I think we need to sort of reposition how some of these trade negotiations are approached and really try to kind of look to the future a little bit more rather than just looking at the current status quo. And I hope that that's something that can be done. I, I would say in the US case, we should have maybe taken a regional approach. I wish that that's something that would have been on the table more because I think country by country is going to be challenging. The US government says that this is going to be a model, but I'm not quite sure yet what that means. And the last thing I guess that I would say too is just kind of going back to the conversation we had earlier about the rules and about what makes this situation so unique with the AFCFTA. I think that now the rest of the world has to take a page from what Africa is doing. I think the time is here that we start instead of trying to impose our, you know, systems from the outside that we really watch whatever. I think Africa, you know, if we can speak about the continent in that way, which I think we can in the context of this conversation, that it's going to be leading the direction that we go in with some of these rules. And so I think that some of the trading partners might find themselves in a position where they really need to be much more conscious of how other parts of the world, of how Africa is governing 
and and not just trying to kind of come in with a set of rules that they think make the most sense from their perspective. So I'm really fascinated to see how that all plays out. And I definitely think that all of this work with the AFCFTA is something for all of us to really closely watch. Absolutely, Catherine. It's exciting times to be working on trade in Africa. And um, I'd just like to remind our listeners that repeated opinion polls suggest that there is actually wider support for trade integration and trade liberalization among developing countries rather than developed countries. And so it's absolutely important to also keep a very close eye on what's happening in Africa and in particular with the AFCFTA. On that note, uh, Wamkele Mene and Katrin Kuhlman, I want to thank you very much for having this conversation with me about the outlook for trade integration in Africa. Once again, Wamkele Mene, Secretary General of the African Continental Free Trade Area, and Professor Katrin Kuhlman at the Georgetown University Law Center. Thank you very much, and Godspeed, uh, Wamkele, with that very important and ambitious agenda that you're working on. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much, Ram. The AIG Global Trade Series is an international partnership between AIG, the International Institute of Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Jacques Delors Institute, the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France. The Bertelsmann Stiftung is knowledge partner of the series. To access articles and interviews from partners in the Global Trade series, and to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2020.